single week more corruption. And last week I gave specific examples of corruption in the financial industry. This week uh, uh, the Democrats are trying to throw a, a Republican representative by the name of uh, Green uh, off of all the committees. That's unprecedented. It's never been done in the history of Congress. Uh, and it's just it's a, it's a sad state we've gotten in. Uh, that uh, corruption and evil and a lack of decorum and a lack of diplomacy seem to run rampant throughout our society. So now we're on the third message, and I told you last week this message would be a little bit of a downer. And the good news is if you're back next week, we'll get back on the positive side of things because all of chapter 3 is Habakkuk's resolution to praise God anyway. And sometimes that's the, that's the three words you need to remember, praise God anyway whatever the situation is. So we want to kind of look at this song of woe, and for those of you who maybe missed the last couple of weeks, uh, this, this is kind of a timeline uh, of Habakkuk as far as we know. The reality is the book of Habakkuk doesn't tell us when it was written. It doesn't tell us really anything about the prophet, and he's not mentioned uh, anywhere else inside Holy Scripture. But we think that this happened sometime after the uh, Israel went into captivity to Assyria, but before Judah went into captivity uh, to Babylon. And that certainly seems to fit the context from what we've learned about the Babylonians. And so we think that basically it's somewhere around 607 to 605 B.C. would probably be a good guess. And we remember that, uh, that one of the issues that the book raises is that uh, God isn't fair. He's just, but he's not fair. Fairness is what men think is right, what we think is equitable. But God, because he is infinitely more intelligent than we are, and because he's sovereign and because he has foreknowledge and he can see the end from the beginning, uh, he is just in that whatever he does, there's no evil, there's no wrong attitudes, there's uh, not even the shadow of evil. Uh, in God, and so his ways are perfect. Now, you and I, we, we see something that's not fair, and we get mad. And we think sometimes we're justified in our anger, but Scripture tells us that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We can never be just when we're angry. Anger is always a sin for man in Scripture. Now, God can be angry, and because he is perfectly holy, he can be just in his judgments. But we can't. And so Habakkuk in our second message, the first question was, God, why aren't you doing something about the evil around me? And his second question was, is it really fair to use the wicked Chaldeans to punish Judah when the Chaldeans are far more wicked than Judah is? And so these, again, are, are the two questions that, uh, that get asked. There we go. So once Habakkuk asks these questions, he waits for an answer and I put this slide back up mainly because I neglected to tell you a little bit of Bible trivia last week that will help you the next time you're playing Bible trivia with your family. So you might even want to jot this down. Who was the shortest man in the Bible? Anybody know? Shortest man in the Bible. And a lot of people want to say it was Zacchaeus. Okay. And Zacchaeus was obviously short. He had to climb in a tree. Not the shortest man in the Bible. By the way, Saul is not the tallest man in the Bible, neither is Goliath. Uh, there, there actually is a man, a king in the Bible, who was 14 feet tall. It makes Goliath look like a dwarf. Uh, but, uh, but, but who was the shortest man? I believe it's Habakkuk because in King James he says, I will set myself upon my watch. Now let's face it, if you can stand on your watch, you're tiny. Okay, that's worse than Tom Thumb. 
Okay, so that's the Bible trivia for the day. But Habakkuk, what he, what he meant when he says that, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch and just wait for God to answer. So again, the first question is, why aren't you doing something about all this evil corruption around me? Why aren't you doing something about it? And God says, well, I'm going to bring the wicked Chaldeans and they're going to come in and will be the instrument of my punishment or chastisement uh, upon the nation uh, of Judah. And then, of course, then Habakkuk begins the next section with a word of praise. And I've got to admire him for doing that. Uh, it had to be hard to just praise God when you've just found out your worst possible enemy is going to come judge you. And God says, I'm the instrument of making that happen. And yet he praises God. He praises him for being the everlasting God. And uh, he refuses, Habakkuk does, to, he refuses to believe that God will utterly let Judah be totally destroyed. He believes that there will be at least a remnant left, and he's right about that. Because, And the reason he believed that is because he knew God would, is a covenant-keeping God. He would keep the promises he made to Abraham and to Isaac and, and to Jacob, that he would be true to keep a people for himself. And that is true, and that is what, what in fact happened. And so there is a, a remnant that is left. I think we may have to get some new batteries for this. Uh, Caleb, my clicker's not working. If you can click in the screen for it. There we go. Thank you. So he praises the holy and eternal God and talks about how the ways of the old belong to him. Uh, he made the earth. He looked at and the nations tremble. The mountains were shattered. The hills of old collapsed. Uh, elsewhere in Habakkuk, he refers to him as the holy one. So he's the eternal God and he's the holy God. But then after praising God, he admits to God, God, I'm confused. I'm confused how you could use such a wicked people as the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, they're the same thing, to judge uh, Judah. Because after all, Babylon's far more wicked than Judah is. And God's answer is, well, don't worry about the Chaldeans. I'll take care of them. It's not your job to judge them. It's my job, and I'll do that in my time. And so that was the second question that was asked. So that brings us to the text for today. And I believe Habakkuk is an incredibly relevant word for us because it so uh, fits the society. So I wonder if you, those of you who are able, don't feel compelled to, but if you're able, would you stand in honor of God's word? And we're going to read Habakkuk 2, uh, verse 6 through the end of the chapter. Shall not all of these take up a taunt against him with ridicule and riddles against him, saying, Woe to him. Now, by the way, I want you to look for two things that I've tried to bold print them to help you. You'll notice that each woe begins with a woe and it concludes with the word for and gives a reason for it. So there's actually uh, five stanzas here, each are three lines long in Hebrew. It's written as poetry. But uh, so you'll notice here's the, the first two woes. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his. For how long? And woe to him who makes himself heavy with pledges. Will not your creditors suddenly rise up and awaken those who make you tremble? Then you shall be as plunder for them, because you've plundered many nations. All the remaining nations will plunder you on account of the blood of humanity and violence against the land and against cities and all who live in them. Woe to him who obtains profit from evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be saved from the hand of misfortune. You have plotted shame for your home, cutting off many peoples and sinning against your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the plaster from the wood will answer it. 
Woe to him who builds a city by blood guilt and who founds a city by wickedness. Look, is it not from Yahweh of hosts that people labor for mere fire and nations exhaust themselves for mere vanity? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, like the waters covering the sea. Woe to him who gives a drink to his neighbors, pouring out your wrath and also making them drunk in order to see their nakedness. You will be sated with shame rather than glory. Drink also yourself and expose yourself. The cup of the right hand of Yahweh will come around upon you and disgrace upon your glory. For the violence of Lebanon will cover you and the destruction of wild animals will shatter them on account of the blood of humanity. And the violence against the land, against the city, and all the inhabitants in it. What value is an idol when its carver has fashioned it? A molten idol, a teacher of lies. For he who has fashioned his creation trusts in it, though making mute idols. Woe to him who says to the wood, wake up, and a lifeless stone arise. Can he teach? Look, it's covered with gold and silver, and there's no breath within it. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's pray. Father, may we, like Habakkuk, learn to praise you even when everything seems to be falling apart around us. And may we recognize that even in the very middle of these declarations of woes, of judgments to come upon the Chaldeans, we're encouraged to look at your throne. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So... This is a bit of poetry uh, that comes up in Habakkuk. It's kind of an annotation. He's asked God, why would you send the wicked Chaldeans and, and then why, why don't you judge them? They're even more wicked than we are. And God says, well, by the way, I am judging them and here's five reasons I'm going to judge them for. And Habakkuk records it, I, whether God spoke it poetically or Habakkuk certainly recorded it poetically. And he did so in these, these stanzas in Scripture. And, and the destruction of Babylon is kind of twofold. There was a destruction of ancient Babylon that was brought about uh, when Darius uh, came underneath the walls of the city. But then later, there's in Revelation, it talks about the destruction of Babylon the Great, which we could get into another whole study into just what Babylon of the Great is. It's basically a world religion uh, that during the tribulation, uh, even the Antichrist who started it, uh, he basically uh, plunges it into, in, into destruction at that time. So there's, this is a five stanzas. There are three verses each. You see the word woe in verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, and then verse 19. Uh, by the way, verse 19 is kind of different because that's the only stanza that doesn't begin with woe. The woe comes uh, a little further toward the end. And all those nations, basically God is saying all the nations that were conquered by Babylon and that Babylon destroyed and Babylon uh, pillaged, they're going to come back in due time and witness the fall of Babylon and they're going to see the shame of Babylon and they're going to raise a taunt or a song, a mocking song, basically against the, the nation of Babylon. And in fact, is verse 6, the very first part of the verse, actually in Hebrew it says, well, will not all of them take up against him a taunt song. And this is a song that mocks someone, that makes fun of them, that it uh, ridicules them. In other words, it's, it's bringing shame to them. And then five woes follow. So we're going to look very quickly at these five woes. And bear in mind that these are things that God was judging the Babylonians for, but it begs the question, 
about whether any of these things could be said of our society today and would God judge these things today. So first of all, he, there is a woe for intimidations, verses 6 through 8. He's talking about the fact that the Babylonians just plundered everything. So once again, he says, Shall not all of these take up a taunt against him with ridicule and riddles against him, saying, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his. For how long? Woe to him who makes himself heavy with pledges. Will not your creditors suddenly rise up and awaken to those who make you tremble? Thus you shall be as plunder for them. And so he's, he's talking about the Babylonians' idea of just taking over a country or a city and devastating their natural resources and leaving them with nothing. But we need to, first of all, before we go any further, say, woe. What's a woe? We need to stop for a minute and ask this question. You know, I, I, you probably have heard, I know I heard my grandmother say this very often. My grandmother uh, lived with us, uh, my, she lived with us until she was about 96 years old, as I remember. And then my mother finally had to put her in a nursing home uh, while I was away to college because she just couldn't take care of herself. And, uh, but my, my grandmother had a lot of aches and pains. Now, she... She was a fairly negative person. She worried about anything. My grandmother has the gold medal of worrying. In fact, is you know she would talk to me sometimes. She was worried that someone was going to rear-end my mother's car, and that they, when my mother got out to see about the damage to the car, that they were going to rob her and leave her for dead on the side of the road. And this was in in Jacksonville, Texas, had a population of ten thousand. We didn't have a lot of uh, that kind of crime in Jacksonville back in the nineteen seventies. But that's what my my grandmother worried about. So you know, I I, I certainly don't want to follow in her footsteps steps there, but I remember hearing my grandmother often because she had so many aches and pains and she'd spent her whole life as a practical nurse taking care of other people. I remember hearing her say when she was aching and hurting, she said, woe is me. Sometimes I think, I, I don't use those words, but I certainly echo the sentiments because uh, of the pain that I feel. So I, I have a lot more empathy for my grandmother than I, than I used to. But woe is meant to be an interjection, kind of like you say, oh, uh, you know, when you're surprised by something or, ah, those are interjections. And woe is an interjection when you see something that is devastating or overwhelming, that uh, you hear, you see distress or you see uh, uh, judgment of God coming because of certain sins. And it's frequently used, by the way, throughout the book of Isaiah. I'll just give you two verses. Woe to the wicked. It is bad for what is done by his hands will be done to him. Isaiah 3.11. Isaiah 5.11, it says, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. He said, in other words, you start drinking early, you drink all day long, good things are not going to happen to you. Uh, so it was frequently used. It's used 22 times by Isaiah. It's used 10 times in Jeremiah. Uh, it's used in, in, in Jeremiah and Lamentations. It's used 7 times by Ezekiel and 14 times throughout the Minor Prophet. There's a lot of woe in the Old Testament. A lot of prophecies of coming judgment. Now, when he first starts out with this first woe, he basically compares um, the nation of Babylon or the Chaldeans to pawnbrokers. Now, I don't know if you've, probably all of you maybe have been in a pawn shop before. I've never been there to get money, although I can remember time, times when we were so poor that the thought occurred to me. 
But I have been in there sometimes to buy something in a bargain. Maybe I needed a particular yard tool or I needed uh, something else. I might go into a pawn shop. And that's where people take things. They don't have any other source of revenue. They're in a spot, usually due to bad financial decisions. They put something up. They're loaned a little money against that collateral. And if they don't pay the money back within a certain time, that, that item, which is worth far more than the loan was, becomes the property of the pawn shop. The pawn shop sells it and makes a profit. In fact, is most pawn shops would rather that you didn't repay the loan because they make more money if you don't repay the loan. And because the collateral is worth uh, a lot more than that. And so basically, he compares the Babylonians to an unscrupulous pawnbroker who learns on, uh, lends on extortionate terms. And he says, you've been heaping the wealth of other nations and taking advantage of them in such a way that it's like theft. And you not only do you rape and pillage the, the country, but then you, you extort from them uh, tribute payments all the time. And you do this not because you actually need to expand your empire, but surely out of greed. And, and God judges them for that. Um, if you've ever listened to Dave Ramsey, you have probably heard him refer to payday loan uh, companies as the scum of the earth. And he actually uses the word scum. And uh, Dave Ramsey is not known for being politically correct. Uh, that's one of the things I kind of admire about him is that he, he says what he thinks. And, uh, uh, but, you know, they really are kind of scum when you look at it. As I went out today, just out of curiosity, looked up the, the typical interest rate of a payday loan. Now, what a payday loan is, for those of you who don't know, and I pray that you never use this, but you're getting short of money and payday's a week away, or it's half a week away, or it's two weeks away, but you need the money now. Alternator's gone out on the car. You didn't have an emergency fund. You need a new transmission. You've got some other major emergency and appliance went out, and you can't wait the two weeks till your, your paycheck comes in. So you go down to get a payday loan. You show them some of your pay stubs. They see that you're actively employed. They write you a check, and you sign a contract, and you don't think a whole much about it. But there is a very, uh, there's a section of that contract written in very fine print that tells you what the annual percentage rate is. Now, when you first hear the percentage rate, it doesn't sound that bad. They might say they're charging you 15%. Now, 15% is not pretty. Okay, but, but let's face it, most of the credit cards you have in your wallet probably have about a 22% interest rate, which means that if you borrow $1,000, you're going to have to pay back the $1,000 plus $220 in interest over the course of a year if the interest didn't compound, which it does, so it's actually worse. And so, you know, but 15, you, you might think, hey, well, if I borrow $100 and I pay back 115 but that solved my problem. I got my alternator fixed. That's not too bad of a deal. But when you look at the fact that you only had that $100 for a week or two weeks' time and you can extrapolate what the annual payment rate is, the, the actual annual percentage rate comes in somewhere between 391% and 521% for payday loans. It's just math, people. Uh, so probably about the stupidest thing you can do as an individual from a financial perspective is go get a payday loan because there's no other form of loan that, that takes more advantage of people than this one and these payday loan shops are making a ton of money. And most people, what happens is they pay it back and then now because they've had to pay back a greater amount uh, than they originally needed, now they're even shorter on the next paycheck so what do they do? They do it again and again and again until they become slaves 
to the payday loan breaker and then their loan makers and then they're calling Dave Ramsey or they're going down to file for bankruptcy. So this is a bad thing. And basically, this is the kind of attitude that uh, the Babylonians had out of sheer greed. They just wanted to take advantage of everything else, have everybody pay them. There wasn't a strategic reason. They attacked other nations. They simply attacked it because they felt like they were gods, militarily speaking. So in verse 6, there's a rhetorical question asked, and in the verses following, it's kind of amplified, and here's the question. He says, shall these victims, these people that have been taken advantage of, uh, not take up a taunt song against the Chaldeans? I remember hearing the story about a payday loan place one time and uh, uh, had taken advantage of people in a certain community. And uh, so some of the people at a local church there began praying that this payday loan breaker, uh, maker would leave the neighborhood uh, and that they wouldn't influence these people anymore. So they began praying, began praying. Three ladies. And uh, then one day the, they, the ladies drive up and they're driving past the payday loan place to the church that was nearby and the payday loan place was on fire. And the two, lady, two of the ladies expressed great surprise at that. And the third lady says, well, I put feats to my prayers. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> that's uh, basically what he's asking here is he says, one of these days, the people you've taken advantage of are going to put feats to their prayers. They're going to, to cause your destruction. They're going to revolt against you. They're going to come against you. He says, will your debtors suddenly arise? So first of all, he says, aren't they going to sing a song, a celebration when you're gone, Chaldeans? But then he says, you know what? It's your own debtors, the people that you have taken advantage of, the people you've taken tribute from. They're going to rise and revolt, and they're going to get back their goods. And not only that, they're going to give you a good shakedown. In fact, this word shakedown is incredibly appropriate because the verse says, will they not wake up and make you tremble? They're going to shake you down. They're going to jingle all the, the coins out of your jeans, and they're going to take more than what you took from them. And Babylon is going to become the victim and be extorted. So uh, the extent of their judgment is, is pretty harsh. Look what he says in verse 8. Because you have spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and all that dwell therein. By the way, the word blood here in Hebrew is really funny. It is a plural it literally is bloods. Now, we don't use the word bloods uh, very often. I guess if you worked in a hospital and you might find occasion to use bloods in the plural at times. But, but basically it's the idea that it's not just a little blood, it's bloodshed. That's what bloods and plural means in Hebrew. Is it's, it's bloodshed. He says because of men's bloodshed. In other words, you have had an indiscriminate look at life and you have taken lives that should never have been taken and now you're going to have bloodshed as well. By the way, you, you, you might not have to think too long to think of how maybe this nation has shed the blood of millions of innocents since Roe v. Wade. And how have we escaped God's judgment this long? I think uh, payday is, is maybe here by now. He says the spoiler is going to be spoiled. The plunderer is going to be plundered. The people that were left of the victims are going to lead the attack. Babylon had sown the wind and now they're going to reap the whirlwind. And that's exactly what's happening. He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity and the rod of his anger shall fail. There's a second woe that comes after this. And this is the woe for intemperance. 
or lacking of self-control, or in this case, it's the Babylonians' pride. Remember, from the first uh, passage that we studied, the Babylonians uh, worshipped, number one, as a god, they worshipped their own military might. They were so proud of their strength, they went around looking. I, I don't know, I guess the most modern-day equivalent I can think of, and I know Matt has seen this too, is a lot of times you go to the gym, and any good gym has probably got mirrors on the wall. And you need that, actually, because you want to make sure when you're doing a particular exercise that you have the right form. Uh, because if you do it a little sloppy, you can get really hurt. Uh, I really hurt my shoulder one time, and it took me eight months to get over it. Uh, I should have been looking more in a mirror that day. I did something stupid. Uh, and yet, uh, there, there's other kinds of uses of that mirror, though, in a lot of gyms. There's some guys that go around, and they spend more time admiring themselves for the muscles they built than watching their form while they're actually supposed to be building it. It's like, uh, it's like they are presidents of their own fan club. That's what the Babylonians were. They were presidents of their own fan club and they worshipped their own might and their own strength and their own prowess. They bragged about it and they couldn't wait to say, who are we going to attack next week? Let's find somebody else. They didn't need to attack it. They didn't need natural resources. They didn't need a strategic port in another city. They just wanted to attack. It was, their, it was their passion. Woe to him who obtains profit from evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. In other words, he says, you attack and you get all these resources and the first thing you do is you go find a, a, a mountain or a hill that you can build a city on so that you can look down on others and also so that you can maybe ensure your own protection. He says you do that to be saved from the hand of misfortune. He says you've plotted shame for your house, cutting off many peoples and sinning against your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the plaster from the wood will answer it. So... This uh, basically says you built a mansion, it's going to become your mausoleum. It's going to become the place that, that you die in. And they had used their unjust gain to, to profit themselves and to exalt themselves. And they built high cities and thick walls to protect them from all harm. Uh, it said that the wall around uh, one city in Babylon was 32 feet thick and 150 feet high. That would have made them impregnable. You could have driven four chariots across uh, wheel to wheel. Uh, chariots were four feet eight inches wide, if you're ever curious about that. Uh, and that's an interesting factoid in history because Romans later, because their chariot wheels were four foot inches, eight inches wide, when it became, when railroad technology became available and they built railroad tracks, they're four feet eight inches wide. It goes all the way back to Roman tradition. It's the only reason for that distance. Uh, but, you know, you could have put four of those chariots side by side on, on top of a Babylonian wall because it was that thick. And then they built those hanging gardens of Babylon. A lot of people say that's what Nebuchadnezzar maybe was looking at when he's on his terrace one day and he sees the hanging gardens that he had built for his wife and how it replicated the mountains of her homeland. And there were all these terraces and different plants at each level of the terrace. And he probably looked out at that and uttered those uh, infamous words, Look at this great Babylon which I have built. And the next thing he knew, he was out in the pasture eating grass because God judged him for that. He built a towering empire on top of other nations. So, and then God goes on to say that it's like there's a heavenly courtroom, and he says that the very the wood uh, that their walls are made of and that plaster is on top of. And the stones that make up the, the external 
part of the edifice of a house are going to cry out in testimony against the Babylonians because basically they took resources from other people that they savagely uh, attacked and victimized in order just to build these beautiful places for themselves. And he says, your, your, own, your own stones and your own wood is going to cry out in the courtroom of heaven. Now, we don't think about rocks speaking, but I seem to remember one time that it was said uh, of, of Jesus when on the day, you know, the day he's making the triumphant entry into Jerusalem and the palm branches are going up and down and, and somebody commented, you know, they, they shouldn't talk like that. They shouldn't say things. Jesus said, if they don't, even the rocks will cry out. And God, God would hear even the rocks crying out. So the Babylonians have built for themselves a great empire, but it's about to all come crashing down around them. Then there's the third woe. This is the woe for iniquity, which is the Babylonians' perversity. Uh, and iniquity, by the way, the definition of iniquity is when we do things our way instead of God's way. There's a whole lot of that going on today, I can promise you. It's not so much that something is, is against the Ten Commandments as it is it, we just do stuff our own way without consulting God. Look what he says in verse 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a city by blood guilt. And blood guilt always means uh, bloodshed. It's an attack. You've, you're guilty of something. It's not in God's plan. He says, and, and who founds a city by wickedness. Look, is it not from Yahweh of hosts that people labor for mere fire and nations exhaust themselves for mere vanity? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord or, or Yahweh like the waters covering the sea. He says, you know, people work so hard to build these beautiful buildings, but they're going to crumble. And if they're wood, they might burn up. In fact, is you can go out and chop wood all day long and, and make whatever you want to of it, and one day it's going to turn into ash. You know, you can just expect that. He says, but the, I, I love what he says here is he says, hey, there's one thing that will last. The wood's not going to last. The rocks won't stay on top of each other forever and ever. And it's true. We still have little, uh, we have columns from the Parthenon, and there's a lot of them stand. The whole building's not there, though. You know what will be there after every last stone has fallen? The glory of the Lord. That's going to still be there. He says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, establishes a town by crime. And so the Babylonians built an entire empire on slave labor and on the sweat of enslaved peoples and murder and bloodshed and oppression and tyranny were the tools that they used. And this word bloodshed, again, is part of that word blood, but it's plural, it's bloods signifying that there's a murder that has taken place. Now, what I love here is this is the third woe. So think about it. you got five things, right? If you have five kids, which kid is the middle kid out of five kids? Kid number three. We have five woes. This is woe number three. This is the middle woe. So right in the smack dab middle of all these woes, a new thought gets introduced that really doesn't have anything to do with woe, and it's a change to look at the Almighty, the Lord Almighty. In other words, in the very middle of judgment, God's there. Now, we don't like that. I, I, I feel like we may have entered a time of judgment upon our nation where Americans are going to start losing their freedoms, and believe me, just read the news a little bit, and you'll see the attack is well underway. Attacks against the Second Amendment, attacks against the First Amendment, attacks calling uh, 
attacks that would make it impossible someday for a pastor to stand up and declare that sodomy or homosexuality is sin. Can't do that in Canada. We can still do it here, but maybe not for long. And, and yet, in the middle of these judgments, God is still there and he's still on his throne. I am so thankful for that reminder. I am so thankful for that. He declares the works of the Babylonian just to be fuel for the fire. He, he, he says, thus says Yahweh the host, the broad walls of Babylon will be utterly demolished. Her high gates will be burnt with fire and the people's labor for nothing and the nations for fire and they will grow weary. That's from Jeremiah. This is basically Babylon's going to become firewood at some time. The fact of the matter is no nation will stand whose God is not the Lord. But blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. See, there's one thing that lasts. It's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. He says, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters covering the sea. Now this is interesting, by the way. Uh, Isaiah in Habakkuk refer to this slightly differently. Isaiah says, uh, they will not injure and they will not destroy in all of my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. There he says the knowledge of the Lord. Habakkuk says the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Basically Isaiah has got the essence and Habakkuk is talking about the effect. When you know the Lord, you appreciate his glory. The more you know the Lord, the more you glorify the Lord. And that's the difference between Isaiah and Habakkuk. I love what the psalmist said. And blessed be his glorious name forever and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now I just, uh, Brother Caleb, were you able to get that video? I've got a thumbs up. I just have to make one comment about this amen and amen. I don't know how many of you have seen the prayer that opened our House of Representatives uh, this session. Uh, but let's, let's look at the 13 seconds of the end of that prayer. Go ahead, Brother Caleb. We've had no rehearsal on this, by the way. Here we go. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths. A man and a woman. So if you didn't hear that, he said amen and a woman. Uh, by the way, this particular Democratic representative is supposed to be a, a Methodist pastor. But I, I have, uh, I grew up in the Methodist church and we knew what God's name was. Uh, I used to, when I lived in Nacogdoches, Texas, I used to have a very close relationship with probably the last circuit riding Methodist preacher anywhere in Texas. And he had five different churches that he rode around to on a constant rotation level. And he and I, he was an older man, he was in his 80s, but he loved me. He actually had me come preach in his Methodist church because he, he knew the gospel. Okay, This fellow doesn't as far as I'm concerned. 
because uh, you don't just pray to the monotheistic God that can be Allah or many other names. And, and you notice how Psalm 72, look how it ends, amen and amen. That word amen is the transliteration of a Greek word, amen, which means let it be. It's a verb. When we say amen at the end of the prayer, we're just saying may it be or let it be. We're asking God to grant our petition. It has nothing to do with a masculine noun. And this guy for getting up there and in front of the United States Congress for saying amen and a women is an idiot. Okay, I'm just, I know that's not politically correct, but uh, and uh, I will repent for showing disrespect to him later. Uh, but that was just stupid. I had to say something about it. Uh, I saw that amen and amen, and instantly that came to my mind. Now, there is a coming reign of Jesus Christ that Habakkuk is going to close us with after all of these woes. And he says, God's going to overthrow Babylon. He's going to overthrow ungodly powers that are represented by Babylon. You notice that references in Revelation 19. That's Babylon the Great. There is a part of this prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. Yes, the ancient Babylon was destroyed. In fact, for a lot of years, everybody said Babylon was just a fictional story in the Bible, doesn't really exist. And then we found bricks that had Nebuchadnezzar's name on it. We had to admit that archaeology, once again, I mean, if you turn over a shovel of dirt in Israel or the Middle East, you're going to prove something from the Bible. It's the way it happens. And, uh, but he says, the Lord's glory and majesty 2 Thessalonians 1.9 will be made evident in the millennium and thereby acknowledged throughout the earth. So there is a time coming, as I understand the end times, and I'm, I'm not saying my way is correct because I'm, I'm still studying that issue. I'm really more worried that I'm living for the Lord now and I'll let the Lord work out the details of eschatology. But there, in my understanding that, that Jesus Christ will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years after the end of the tribulation. And at the end of that time, he lets the demons out of hell to see who the real believers are, who can be tempted away and who can't. And it's going to be a marvelous thousand years because Jesus will sit on a throne in Jerusalem. And the glory, and, and by the way, everybody will know who Jesus is. Everybody's going to know he's going to be basically king over the earth then as well he should be everybody know with him and so ex, uh, extensive and abundant will be that knowledge it'll be like the waters covering the sea there's a fourth indignity here and that is uh, an indignity for the babylonians or a woe for the babylonians cruelty and indignity to others he pictures the babylonians as a drunk who tries to get his neighbors drunk too, and if he can get them more drunk than he is, he can take advantage of them. He can basically make sure that uh, he exposes their nakedness. He can take advantage of them, steal stuff from them. He can rob them. And so he, they add to drunkenness, lust, and violence. And, and in fact, there's this phrase in this verse where it says, pouring from the wineskin, it actually means joining it to your wrath. Uh, this is the first recorded instance, I think, of in Scripture of a mixed drink. You know, a mixed drink is where you have two kinds of alcohol and you mix them together. And, and basically, this is a mixed drink of, of uh, wrath and passion, or wrath and lust that the Babylonians had. And then these victims fall prey to it, and they, they wake up in shame and, and slavery and subjugation. And so this revelry over Babylon, over all its victims, we turn to shame. By the way, what was Babylon doing when it was finally destroyed? They were having a drunken party 
And they were using the vessels from the house of God that they brought back from Jerusalem to drink out of when suddenly the hand appears on the wall and writes, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And uh, they were involved in basically a drunken party. And the Babylonians are pictured as lying drunk and exposed, ashamed, scorned by all, and they're going to drink from God's wrath this time, a cup of his wrath that he holds in his right hand. And they're going to be covered with disgrace, just as they had done to others. And the reason for the Babylon shame was kind of interesting. He says it's because of what they did to Lebanon. Now, there were a lot of things they'd done, but Lebanon was a neighbor to the north of Judah. You'll remember that when Solomon went to build the temple, he got the cedars from Lebanon, from King Hiram, and brought the cedars to uh, Jerusalem to build the house. Well, basically, when Babylon attacked Lebanon, they laid waste to it. They burned down the forest. They didn't just take the wood they needed for stuff. They took some, and then they burned down the rest. And then there were plenty of cattle in Lebanon that they could have used for food. They took some for their first meal, and then they just killed the rest just for fun. That's how cruel these Babylonians were. And he says, the way you treated Lebanon, that's how you're going to be treated. That's the kind of judgment that's coming on you. And then the worst thing is this: the human bloodshed uh, that you, we've already mentioned twice in this book. So it's, it's an indignity on God's creation. By the way, I, you know, I don't think we have to all go out and hug a tree with Algamore. But, you know, God gave us a planet to take care of. And he expects us to be wise with it. Um, when, I, when I'm diving in the ocean, I have a plastic mesh bag inside my scuba vest. And if I see something down there that's not supposed to be there because somebody threw garbage in the ocean pick it up and I put it in that bag. We take it out. We remove the trash. Stuff's not good for the fish. Uh, We need to take care of our planet, but especially because it's God's creation. We should take care of all of it, and and God says that. And then finally we get to the last woe, and this is the woe for idolatry. And to me, this is the biggest one of all. Uh, I want to show you a few pictures. Uh, I found a bunch more of these pictures, so we scanned them in. A lot of them have yellowed, so I've got to go through and edit them. But I just want to show you a few pictures. That upper left picture there is a store outside of a temple. And what happens is this lady is going in, taking some of the money from her paycheck, and she's buying things that she can burn to offer to the gods. And so one of the things that you can get, you can get this, uh, or to your ancestors as well, you can get this paper money. And by the way, there's a grocery store in Arlington, Texas, for those people who still need to do this over here. And they look like dollar bills, uh, except they're not green, a different color. And it says right on there in English, Bank of Hades. I've always found that really interesting that it says Bank of Hades. But basically, uh, your ancestors, for example, might be starving in the spirit world. And so you go buy some Bank of Hades notes and you burn them in a fire and all that money goes up so Granny and Grandpa can afford to go to the the PX or the commissary or whatever it is they have in, in the nether world to be able to buy stuff to take care of them. Or you can buy a little plastic Mercedes Benz and you can go burn that and Granny and Grandpa will have a car to drive around in the netherworld. And you know, it's uh, you can even back then, and we don't even have this brand anymore, but I remember seeing a miniature Curtis Mathis television. Curtis Mathis was a television company in Athens, Texas for many years and they made really good TVs and you could buy one of those, you could burn it and it'd go out, out so your ancestors could enjoy it in the netherworld. And then you could buy other things, incense sticks to burn to the gods and and whatnot. 
And of course, they take this very seriously. And, you know, it's hard to get Christians to get on their knees to pray, but you go to any temple and you can see devout worshipers worshiping gods that can't hear, that can't see, that can't understand. Uh, it might be a little hard for you to see in this picture, but if you look at that big door right in the middle where the bicycles are parked and you look just to the left of it, you'll see a small table. It's a short table. It's only about that high. It's outside of someone's sliding glass windows to their apartment. And uh, that lady that's there in the blue shirt has just brought out this food. It was a duck and six beers. And she brought it out and she had incense and she was bowing and praying so that the ancestors that had gone on to the netherworld could swoop down and eat the spiritual part of the duck and the six cans of spirits. Uh, and then uh, they'd go back up, they'd be fed, then she could take this inside and, and feed the somewhat already spiritually gnawed upon food to her family. And we think, oh, that's stupid. But you know what? We've got some idols of our own. Now this, this one, uh, how do you say this goddess's name is Tenmu or, or Tenma, the Heavenly Mother? What, what, what's the right term for the Heavenly Mother? Tenmu, is it Tenmu or Tenma? Tenmu. Tenmu, okay. So Tenmu is a heavenly mother. Uh, she has a whole lot of similarities to the Roman Catholic version of Mary in some ways. But if you look very carefully, on the upper left-hand corner you'll see a God doing this. That is a God that can see for a thousand miles. He has to be able to see for a thousand miles to protect the heavenly mother from any danger that could come to her. And on, on the right side, you'll see a God like this. He's got his eyes cocked and he's listening. He can hear for a thousand miles and likewise he is there to protect the heavenly mother. And I, I got my first sermon point here. I want a God that doesn't need protection. Okay, and there's a little closer up view of, of those two gods at another place inside the same temple, one that can see for a thousand miles and one that can hear for a thousand miles uh, so that they can protect her. But you know, you see the, these young people there, they're burning their incense, they don't know any better, they think they've got to do that if they want to get favor, and of course there's a statue of Buddha, and there are in any temple over there probably thousands of images of Buddha without, and I'm not exaggerating, I'll show you in a minute. But you know what, you could pray all day long and it wouldn't, it wouldn't make a difference at all here. Uh, now here, I told you about this last week. Look very carefully on that table. I'm going to try and turn on the laser pointer, Brother Caleb. No, I'm not, because if I do, I'm likely to I exit the whole presentation. Don't want to do that. Uh, I don't know, can you point in your mouse to those little red blocks that are near the corner of that talia? So you'll see there and over to the right you'll see some more. These are red blocks in the shape of a kidney bean. They're flat on one side and curved on the other. Now let me explain what they're used for. So you go in the temple, if you look at that picture on the upper left, you'll see that the, this lady in white, about four or five feet in front of her, is what looks like a red trash can. And in that red trash can are some sticks. And these sticks have numbers on it. And you go over there and you shake the sticks up. And then you pull one out and it's got a number written in Chinese. And you take this stick and then you go and you pray to your God saying, Is this my stick? Is this the one I'm supposed to have? And then you take, these, you take two of these curved blocks that you just saw in the last picture. And you go one, two, splat on the floor. Now if one up... One is up and one is down. That, that means, yes, that's your stick. 
If they're both cur flat side down, it's no. If they're both curved side down, it's maybe, or something like that. I, the formula may vary. In fact, is I'm not sure if everybody knows what they're supposed to do, but they all have a formula for figuring out if that's their stick from their God. And if so, they go to this little thing that looks like a post office. They pull out the piece of paper that has that number on it, and that's their fortune from their God. And we think, that is so stupid. I don't know. How many of your coworkers read the horoscope in the newspaper? You know, how stupid is that? Uh, believing that how the sun and moon were aligned at the moment of your birth somehow determines your destiny. No thanks, I'll put my destiny in the hands of the Almighty. Now listen to what he says about this. What value is an idol? Now notice this time he doesn't start with a woe, he starts with a question. What value is an idol when a carver has fashioned it, a molten idol, a teacher of lies, for he who fashioned his creation trust in it, though making idols? Woe to him. Now we get to the woe who says to the wood, wake up, and a lifeless stone, arise. Can he teach? Look, it's covered with gold and silver, and there's no breath within it. But Yahweh's in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is discussing this very problem, and he says people take wood, and they carve the wood, and they make a statue to worship. And by the way, the word image, uh, you'll notice there's an idol and an image. And idols were made of wood. Images were made of molten metal or had wood with molten metal that had been poured over them. So there's a slight difference between an idol and an image in the Old Testament. And so he says you, you take this wood and you carve out an idol and then you go worship it. But then you got all this, this wood chips left. And you got all the sawdust left. You got all the little wood shavings left. So you go cook them, you, you burn them, and, and cook your hot dog over it. Now, the word hot dog is not in the original Hebrew. That's the, the RSV, the refuted standard perversion. Uh, but there is, you know, basically he says you cook your meal over it. He says, what difference is the wood that you worship and the wood you cooked your meal over? Nothing. Because they're, they're not alive. They can't help you. See, false gods can't help us. The final stanza doesn't open with the... the the hollow and ominous word woe, it just asks a question. What good is an idol? What good is an image? Because neither one can do anything for the worshiper. Idols and images are lifeless. And i got to tell you something. What good is your 401k beyond this life? What, what good is your car. I had a brief moment I coveted after a car yesterday. I just uh, I got out of the car. I have a perfectly good 2000 Subaru that I absolutely love. And uh, I keep it well maintained. I hope I can drive it another 15 years. I, I just like to see the car looking good and running good when it's that old. And I, I love the car. It feels good. But I got out and there was this red Lexus there. It was a sports car. And it was a prettier red than I'd ever seen before. I'd never seen it, you know, it had those metallic flakes in it and whatnot. And, and as you walked, the color of the red kind of shifted a little bit. And, and so for a brief moment, I, I could see myself in that car, you know, my shirt unbuttoned down here, big gold chain around my neck, driving around. I, fortunately, that was such an ugly picture. It left my mind as quickly as it got there. But, you know, what good is having a fancy car? Not saying it's wrong to have a fancy car or a newer car, but really what good does it do you in eternity? 
can't see that it's going to do any good in eternity. Idols and images are, are lifeless. Uh, here's the, the god Guangong, who's the god of business. I think I'm right on that. Is that Guangong? That's one of the names. Okay. So that's one, one of his names, god of business. And people will come and they'll worship him if they want to be prosperous in their business. But the, the reality is he isn't going to help. It's just, it's wood and it's paint. In fact, is, I had another picture I nearly put in the presentation of a man standing on a ladder repainting the gods. And that was the second point to my sermon. Not only do I not want a God that needs protection, I don't want a God that needs repainting. You know, uh, and certainly that God can't help. See, a dead God can't answer the prayers of the living. You and I have something no other religion in the world has. If you're, uh, if you're worshiping Vishnu or Shivu, you have a dead God. If you're worshiping Buddha, you have a dead God. You're worshiping Muhammad, that's a dead fella. And Allah is just a, uh, basically just a knockoff of the uh, moon God. And, and he's not alive either. Allah, by the way, some people will try to say, well, Allah is monotheistic, so Allah and, and the God of Christianity are the same. No, they're not. They're not even close. There is only one living God and that he manifests himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no other name, despite what that guy said in his prayer, praying to the monotheistic God. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than Jesus Christ. That's it. That's not intolerant. It's just accurate. God expressed his condemnation to idolatry. He says, woe to him who says it would come to life or, or lifeless stone, wake up. How absurd, how stupid it is to stand before a piece of water, some cold stone, and cry out, arise, awake. I, I remember the story on um, Mount Carmel, Elijah and the false prophets. That's one of my favorite stories. I have a, I have a sermon called the Dancing Dummies and the Dynamic Duo. I love that title, by the way. And you'll remember that in the, in the contest between the prophet of God and these, these false prophets of Baal, that it was proposed that they each build an altar, put wood on it, and then soak the, the uh, you know, wood and water and pray. And that was at least the prophet did that to his deal. He put barrel after barrel after barrel of water in a time when there had been drought for three and a half years. And then the false gods, basically their prophets of Baal circled around this thing and prayed for it to catch on fire at any moment. To catch the sacrifice on fire, burn it up. There is a Jewish tradition, now that's not scripture, but in the Mishnah, which is a commentary of the Jews on Old Testament scriptures, they say that they even put a guy in the bottom of the altar to try to light the wood from underneath. And apparently that didn't work. And yet all, all the prophet of God does is he, he calls down, fire comes down from heaven, and not only devours the sacrifice and the wood, but the stones and licks up the water in the trench that was around it because there was a living God, a God that was a consuming fire. So they're the dancing dummies and the dynamic duo of the prophet and, and, and God. Anytime we worship something we create rather than worshiping the creator, we're doing stupid. But you know what? You, could, you can get pretty easily to worshiping your leisure time or your bank account or your cars or your house or your status or your recliner. We need to get our focus on what's really important. 
And then I just love the way that this stanza ends. You see, the first four stanzas all begin with woe, and then they have a four. I, I highlighted that for you when we read the scripture earlier. But verse 18 begins with a question, and verse 20 ends with a but. Not a four this time, but a but. And here's what he says. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Now, next week we're going to get to chapter 3, and we're going to hear the praise that comes forth from a now enlightened Habakkuk. But here's the deal. When you look around you and you see corruption everywhere and you wonder why people aren't being brought to justice for their, their role in an election or their role in, in what they're doing uh, in our government or when evil people are given immunity from their crimes and they're not being punished and where because we don't have enough room in prisons we let people out and then they kill somebody the next week. When you see all this evil going on around you, but the Lord is in his holy temple. He's in control. Thank God. Because what I'm seeing is a mess, but the Lord is in his holy temple. From dumb man-carved idols, the attention shifts to the living God. And instead of shouting, arise and awake to stupid pieces of wood and metal, he says the whole earth must stand in silent awe before him. You probably remember the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17. Jehoshaphat's king over Judah, and they're being attacked by the Ammonites, the Moabites, and, and the Edomites uh, from Mount Seir. And as they're being attacked, a prophet rises up, a guy that we never see anywhere else in Scripture. He rises up and gives this word. He says, set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah, and Jerusalem, you shall not need to fight in this battle. Boy, what a word. They faced an overwhelming force. He says, tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And they did. And they went out, the Bible says, singing hymns. See, in the midst of all this frustration, why aren't you doing anything about the evil around me? And why are you going to send people more wicked than, than the people in my own nation to judge my nation? doesn't seem right, God. He acknowledges that God is going to judge the wicked. He's going to do it in his own time. And the one thing we can hold on to for sure is the Lord's in his holy temple. At best, you can hold on to a president you like for eight years. At best, you can, I wish I could say at best, you could hold on to a senator or representative for six years, but I can't say that, can I? But you can hold on to God for all eternity. So what do we learn? God's judgment comes upon the Babylonians, lost men for a bunch of reasons. Intimidation, they took advantage of others. Intemperance, they had a lack of self-control. They exalted themselves instead of God. Iniquity, they basically shed blood and committed violence for their own personal greed. Indignity, they brought others to shame and, and nakedness. Idolatry, worshiping Gods that just frankly can't help at all. So at the very center of all those verses is a reminder in verse 14 that the whole earth will be full of God's glory. And the very ending of this is the Lord is still in his holy temple. And at the end of every period of judgment and every chastisement, and they're not pleasant to go through, and Christians will probably have to go through a lot of that with the society in which they live, but the difference is we doing it 
knowing that the one who's in control of everything loves us. He's crazy about us. He sent his son Jesus to die for us. Let's, uh, let's stand and have a song of invitation. And I don't really have a, you know, you're supposed to take aim when you preach just like you do at the gun range and shoot for a specific target. I don't have one. I'm just going to take a moment to get on my knees and thank God that he's still on his throne. Because otherwise it's, 